Hello and welcome to Saga 50 for 50 on Heritage Bites produced by Heritage Mississauga. 2024 marks the 50th anniversary since the incorporation of the town of Mississauga, Port Credit and Streetsville to create the city we now know and love. In this special celebration of Mississauga, we invite you to join us as we walk down memory lane with 50 weeks of podcasts recounting incredible moments in this city's rich history. This is Saga 50 for 50. Welcome to another episode of Saga 50 for 50. My name is Justine Lin, the Collections and Resource Lead here with Heritage Mississauga. Around this time of year, more than ever, love is in the air. You might be preparing that romantic day or present to show that special person in your life just how much they mean to you. But why do we do this? Haven't you ever wondered why, I don't know, the heart symbolizes love? Why do we get flowers on Valentine's Day? And who was St. Valentine? And why is this holiday named after him in the first place? Well, I've wondered those exact same questions, mostly because I'm a nerd, but you know, I'm interested, I'm curious. So today we're going to talk about those questions and maybe get you some answers. This time on Saga 50 for 50. Love is in the air, folks. What comes to mind when you think of Valentine's Day? Is it Cupid or chocolates and candies in the shape of hearts? Is it pink and red roses and cards filled with mushy-gushy exclamations of love? Well, none of these are an accident really. But the way they came into our consciousness is not a straight path either. Otherwise, we would probably picture ourselves getting whipped by bloody pieces of hide. Wait, wait, wait. I'm getting ahead of myself. We have to go back. way back the early stone connection with romance or rather reproduction and february was an ancient roman holiday known as lupercalius celebrated in ancient rome at the eeds of february or february 15th lupercalia was a fertility festival dedicated to faunus the god of agriculture that was also meant to honor the roman founders romulus and remus If you don't know their story, Romulus and Remus were twin boys ordered to be thrown into the river for their mother's broken vows of celibacy. Pretty harsh, right? Uh, however, they were found and raised by a she-wolf in a cave later called Lupercal in honor of the fertility god Lupercus, all names deriving from the word for wolf, lupus. The holiday itself would kick off with the ritual sacrifice of a goat or other animal. The hide would then be cut into strips and dipped into the sacrificial blood. Priests then ran around naked, whipping women and crop fields with the hides. Women welcomed the lashes and even bared their skin to receive the rite, as it was thought to increase their fertility. Men would then choose a woman's name from an urn to be coupled with for the remainder of the festival, sometimes even for the year. Many fell in love because of this practice and were subsequently married. Now that must have been a pretty interesting meat cute story. Eh? Now when Christianity started and became more widely practiced, the Lupercalia festival seemed 
while a bit weird. It was eventually outlawed for being unchristian at the end of the 5th century. Shortly thereafter, Pope Galatius then declared the day before February 14th, St. Valentine's Day. A lot of people point this out and they say, hey, isn't that a little bit suspicious that we outlaw a pagan holiday and then we institute a Christian holiday like the day earlier? So maybe Valentine's Day is just the Christianized version of Lupercalia. Uh, maybe, but also, what is the real connection here? Valentine's Day was never really associated with fertility or even love and romance until much, much later. So I don't know, maybe it's just a coincidence. Regardless, this leaves me to discuss the elephant in the room. Who was St. Valentine anyway? There are so many legends surrounding the saint, so it's hard to know the truth of his life. However, most agree that he was a martyr. You see, Roman Emperor Claudius II outlawed marriage for his soldiers, believing that their lack of families would make them better soldiers as they would be unattached and could therefore devote themselves entirely to the pursuit of war. However, priest Valentine, yes, he was a priest at that time, was none too pleased with the situation. He believed it was your right to marry, and this ruling was therefore unjust. He began secretly performing marriages, and when Claudius found out, well, he ordered Valentine's death. Another legend suggests Valentine was executed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons. Apparently, before his death, Valentine wrote letters to his love from prison signed, from your valentine so could this be the first valentine ever well maybe if you believe the story but personally much of these stories reek of much later romanticizations and retellings interpretations of his life after all valentine's day was never associated with love until the medieval era if not later so why this day's association with love in the first place was because of lupercalia as we discussed earlier Eh, well, it seems instead that we may have the birds and the bees to thank for this one, or rather just the birds. During the Middle Ages, it was believed that February 14th was the beginning of birds' mating season. English poet Godfrey Chaucer's 1375 poem, Parliament of Fowls, makes this connection quite clear. But this was sent on St. Valentine's Day. When every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. Okay, so maybe that is the connection. But what about other flying, loving things? Eros? I mean, Cupid? Who is he? Well, the Roman god Cupid originated from the Greek god of love named Eros, who played with people's emotions. He was known to be quite mischievous, using golden arrows to incite love and lead arrows to cause aversion. In Roman myth, Cupid was the son of Venus, the goddess of love, so you could say love was in his veins well and truly. In Hellenistic period, he began to be portrayed as a mischievous, chubby little child, just like we see him today. Victorians popularized this image of Cupid during Valentine's Day due to his associations with love. But what still baffled me was, why is this chubby child so crazy about my heart? Why not the liver? Why not my spleen? Seems as good an organ as any. Well, in some ways, it makes sense. I mean, when you look into the eyes of your partner or you go on a first date with your crush for the first time, do you say, oh, my spleen? No, you feel it in your heart. 
You feel it beating in your chest, coming up in your throat, making your cheeks blush. From modern times to antiquity, people have been making parallels between these emotions and your heart. The ancient Greek poet Sappho wrote of her many female admirers, saying, Love shook my heart, like the wind on a mountain troubling the oak trees. Ancient Romans tried to understand this direct connection and make it something more tangible. They believed a vein extended from the fourth finger of the left hand directly to the heart. Aristotle even described the heart as having three chambers with a small dent. In the medieval era, there was a fascination with these ancient beliefs. They began to think about how this would look, and in 1344, the first heart-shaped icon appears in a manuscript entitled The Romance of Alexander. We see a woman accepting a heart and the man clutching his chest, indicating that it is his and he has given it over to her. And hearts only spread from there. Heart imagery was everywhere, on pages of manuscripts, coats of arm, playing cards, sword handles, engravings, jewelry, and yes, later Valentines. However, Valentine cards would not originate until the 18th century when lovers would exchange small tokens of affection. In the 1840s, Esther A. Howland, known as the mother of Valentine, begins to sell the first mass-produced Valentines. Howland's cards had real lace, ribbons, and colorful pictures. In 1900, cheap postage and improvements in printing technology allowed for the widespread exchange of Valentine cards. Today, Valentine's Day remains the second largest card-sending holiday of the year. However, my favorite Valentine cards were rather unsavory. Vinegar Valentines were cards often anonymously sent in the 19th century, and for good reason too, because they were meant to insult the recipient's physical attributes, character traits, morality, and much, much more. One from 1909 features a woman holding a lemon, threatening to squeeze its juices on the man who holds up his hand in disapproval. The caption reads, Tis a lemon that I hand you and bid you now, Skidoo, because I love another. There is no chance for you. Suffragettes were often targets for their supposed moral failings. Postmasters who discovered these cards would sometimes confiscate these vulgar vinegar valentines to save the recipient embarrassment. And others who actually did receive the cards often did not tend to keep them for obvious reasons. Today, very few survive. While we have no evidence of vinegar valentines here in historic Mississauga, there are some pretty cute ones in the museum's Mississauga's collection, which exists to this day, dating from the 1910s from the Harris Sayers family of Benares Historic House. One reads, To my valentine, the fragrant flowers in the garden have hearts serene and tender too. The sweetest and fairest of them is not so sweet and fair as you. Another has an image of a fish caught on a hook with a heart that reads, To my valentine, as good a fish in the sea as ever were caught. If you don't believe it, just send down a line for surely your fishing will not come to naught for here. On your hook is your own valentine. 
In the 1920s, Valentine's advertised in the local newspaper tended to be quite kind of cartoonized and very silly. Some would say even not cringy a little bit. One reads, I'm a toucan, love. One can't be happy all alone, but two can. <laughs> get it? Do you get it? No? Oh, oh, okay, how about this one? My heart is yours from roof to cellar because you're such a regular fella. Yeah, so uh, pretty bad. In the 1940s, Valentine's began to take inspiration from Valentine's of the past. One article from 1946 oogles over a Valentine that had been in a Canadian family's possession for over 229 years, asserting that sentimental Valentines were back in. Frills and lace with simple messaging was all the rage. The paper notes that these cards drip in sentiment and perfume. Rather than imagery of cupids and hearts, Card designers carefully crafted valentines with lace and cellophane and adored them with various perfumes. There were even tutorials on how to make your own. One example seen in the globe was actually of a knitted flower, which I thought was really cool. So these valentines did not even have to have a message attached to them, though valentine messages could be bought. But rather, the trend was simply to have a sentimental piece of almost art to remind you of your valentine. An interesting thing to note here is that around this time period, Valentine card manufacturers begin to expand their reach outside of simply young women. One article reads, It's really a woman's day, particularly a young woman's day, but greeting card manufacturers now make Valentines for dad, mom, friends, teachers, brothers, and sisters. I would argue that this is similar to how it is today. Now, with all this talk of artistic valentines and getting valentines now, apparently for every single person in your life, ugh, the costs are really going to start piling up here. But no fear, they had a solution for that too. Thrifty valentines. These two valentines at vastly different prices for their times were advertised in the Globe and Mail in 1946 as such. This $1 valentine is on the market now that price ceilings are off. It is 8 by 10 inches, has real lace bordering and has a sweet smelling sachet of carnations and spice. Or for those whose budget does not stretch to $1, this 25 cent valentine is proving a big seller this year. It also has a sachet in the center. But that valentine card would not be complete without chocolates, now would it? But hey, what's so romantic about chocolates anyways? Chocolate originated with the ancient Mayans, who made a thick and frothy chocolate drink with chili peppers, honey, and water. The Aztecs believed cacao was given to them by the gods and was considered more valuable than gold. They too were the ones who developed chocolate's association to love, as it was considered an aphrodisiac. Aztec ruler Montezuma II supposedly drank gallons of chocolate every day for energy and as an aphrodisiac. Chocolate was said to inflame desires and make lovers more open to romance. Spanish conquistadors brought cacao, hot chocolate, back to Spain in the 1500s. It was enjoyed by European elites, mainly Spanish and French, who added sugar and other spices. 
However, there's an initial aversion to chocolate as too, quote unquote, foreign in Britain. But eventually it was adopted in the 17th century with the creation of chocolate houses amongst nobles who indulged in chocolate as a miracle food. This association is likely thanks to Spanish doctor Antonio Ledesma, who wrote, Chocolate will make old women young and fresh, create new motions of a flesh, and cause them long for, you know what, if they but taste of chocolate. Mrs. White's Chocolate House was established in England in 1693 and became known far and wide as a place of gallantry, pleasure, and entertainment. Stories of chocolate's aphrodisiac powers spread, resulting in European elite giving their lovers chocolates. As Valentine's Day was becoming popular in the 19th century, certain inventions actually made chocolate more accessible to the masses, no longer simply an exclusive product consumed only by nobles in these luxurious chocolate houses. In 1847, British chocolatier J.S. Fry and Sons created the first chocolate bar. Then, in 1876, Swiss chocolatier Daniel Peter of Nestle created milk chocolate. In 1849, Swiss chocolatier Rudolf Lind, yes, of Lind, mixed and adulterated chocolate, giving it a smooth, melt-in-your-mouth consistency. And in 1861, Richard Cadbury of Cadbury, you guessed it, packaged his chocolates in heart-shaped boxes with cupids and rosebuds that he marketed as memento boxes for love letters. This is perhaps the true reason why chocolates often accompany Valentine cards, because yes, the chocolate was ooey-gooey delicious, but more importantly, the chocolate box was the perfect place to store your Valentine cards forevermore. But hey, you might be thinking no Valentine gift is complete without flowers, right? Well, flowers have a long history of romance. Roses were often thought to be Venus's favorite flower as she believes they stood for strong feelings. Further, the Persian custom of giving flowers was adopted by Charles II of Sweden in the 18th century, quickly spreading to the rest of Europe. By the Victorian era, gifting flowers, especially roses, was a way to pass on nonverbal messages. Flowers adorned women's hair, their clothing, men's suits, and even valentines, all with hidden messages. However, these messages depended on the type, color, size, placement, and arrangement of said flowers. Red roses symbolized romance, love, beauty, and courage. As the famous poet Robbie Burns wrote, Oh, my love is like a red, red rose. That's newly sprung in June. Yellow roses symbolize friendship and joy and new beginnings. Orange roses symbolize fascination, desire, and sensuality. Dark pink roses indicate appreciation and gratitude. Light pink roses symbolize admiration and or sympathy, while white roses stand for innocence and purity. You could combine all these to say any number of things to your intended target. Locally, there were several flower shops. For example, Cooksville had at least two flower shops called the Cooksville Flower Company or also uh, John T. Walker and Sons. Both of these published beautiful Valentine's Day ads urging locals to buy their flowers with lines like, 
Nature brings forth flowers for our soul's appreciation. Let flowers be your valentine. So with all this talk of flowers and chocolates and cards, when did Canadians begin celebrating Valentine's Day like how we know today? Well, it all began with the Victorians and the Edwardians, and by the 1900s, we see many historic Mississauga businesses advertising for the holiday. So we know for sure that Mississaugans were celebrating Valentine's Day by that time. Newspapers encourage local couples to celebrate because, who knows, you might just meet your special someone on Valentine's Day. One of my favorite local newspaper articles reads... Friday is St. Valentine's Day, and this year is a leap year. Yes, boys, you had better be careful and watch your step on Friday. Don't let it become a day of regrets. Time was, centuries ago, when a single man wasn't safe on this day, particularly when it came to a leap year. History repeats itself, we are told. Anyway, you can't say we didn't warn you. Valentine dances were often held so that young people could take their sweethearts out for some fun. Clark Memorial Hall in Port Credit was the site of many Valentine's dances and euchres with admission ranging from 25 cents to 40 cents and service personnel free during the wartime. Valentine teas were held in homes or out in local churches like Trinity Anglican in Port Credit. Trinity Anglican Church's 1945 Valentine's Bake Sale and Tea to raise money for the church went a little something like this. The Women's Guild of Trinity Church held a very successful Valentine tea and bake sale on Tuesday afternoon, February 13th in the parish hall. In spite of the inclement weather, there was a very good turnout. A substantial sum of money was raised, which will be turned over to the Chancel Guild to be used towards the purchase of a vacuum cleaner. The tea table was arranged with deeping carnations, cedar and pine sprays, and candles was presided over by Mrs. J.H. Fryer. Tea was served by Mrs. J.W. Dodds and assisted by Mrs. Corey and other guild members. Mrs. W.B. Honeywell was in charge of the bake sale, which was a great success. In Mississauga, Valentine's Day is particularly special because it is also the birthday of one of our most beloved residents. Can you guess who? It is none other than our very own Hazel McCallion, who was born on February 14, 1921, and later became the mayor of Mississauga for a whopping 36 years. In 2016, February 14th was renamed Hazel McCallion Day across Ontario to honor her birthday. So whether you celebrate Valentine's Day or not, February 14th is a time of happiness, joy, and celebration one way or the other. With that, I would like to thank you so much for joining me on this expedition of love and our connections to a truly ancient celebration of romance. I hope you come on this listening and learning journey again with me next week. Until then, take care. We hope you enjoyed this week's installment of Saga 50 for 50. Help us keep celebrating the 50th anniversary of the city of Mississauga by following Heritage Bites wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out Heritage Mississauga on all our social media platforms and follow hashtag Saga 50 for 50 to stay up to date on all of Mississauga's 50th anniversary celebrations. This is Heritage Mississauga signing off. 
Until next time.